Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. I had a few panic attacks at one point down in Key West, Florida. My first assignment with MTV was the beach house in Key West, Florida, 2001. I'll never forget it. It was so hot. And I felt like I had to perform incredibly perfect to get the job because I was looking around and seeing guys like Carson Daly and all sorts of brilliant people, stars. Cisco from Drew Hill. <laughs> all sorts of people thinking about the dog song at the time. I mean, it was a scene. And so I made up that I needed to be absolutely perfect in order to be a part of this scene. Because at that point, I'd never experienced any stardom like this before, any platform like this. I was from the most humble beginnings in Canada. And here I am all of a sudden in the midst of all these pop stars. So I had major imposter syndrome major fraud in my mind like somehow I'd snuck into the coolest party and they were going to figure me out any minute they're going to figure out that I'm not nearly as cool as everybody a year <laughs> they're going to figure out that I'm not smart I dropped out blah 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 like I just had imposter syndrome paralyzing imposter syndrome yeah what was your yeah, impression geez. of Kanye when you first met him well he was hungry he was humble he was hungry and he was not going to hold back from sharing where he's at. He was very clear about, hey, I need a you here at first segment. I'd actually never heard an artist be that direct with me about what they needed in such a way where it really empowered me to go ahead and just make it happen. I was really amazed with his direct ask and how bold he was in it, how shameless he was about it, but also how humble he was. He really was humble at the time. <laughs> it's hard to believe. <laughs> I mean, but I think Kanye has a different sort of humility. I'll say he's humble to the downloads that he receives and delivering on that. Like he obeys that part of him that he thinks is like spirit being channeled through him to create something. That's what he reports to now. Hey there, it's Light Watkins. Welcome back to the podcast. I have a very special guest on the show today. He has been a friend of mine for several years. We actually met in Los Angeles and we're part of the same men's group, which he started. And he's been a creator and facilitator of various personal development workshops for many years. He's considered to be one of the best in that space, especially when it comes to helping you find your voice both on and off camera. And most recently, he's been featured on that new Kanye West documentary on Netflix called Genius. His name is Caduce Philippe. So if you saw that documentary about Kanye West, which I personally describe as a spiritual experience because I loved it so much, then you'll remember Caduce from that very first episode. He was the mixed-raced, curly-haired MTV VJ who was the person who 
basically got Kanye featured on MTV as a rapper for the first time because Kanye obviously started off as a producer. And there's this wonderful moment in the documentary where Caduce and Kanye were filmed while talking outside of SOBs, which is a very popular music venue in New York City. And it was it was that moment just before Kanye actually debuted as a rapper in front of a major audience because he was opening for the rapper Talib Kweli of Black Star fame. And Caduce was just chopping it up with Kanye about how he could potentially get more exposure as a rapper. Basically, the documentary was all about the obstacles that Kanye had to overcome in order to be accepted and then ultimately respected as a rapper and not just as a hip-hop producer. And so Caduce was offering Kanye some words of wisdom from his perspective as a popular presence on MTV. Anyway, after about five years of working as a VJ on MTV, Caduce ended up leaving. He was not feeling as fulfilled as he once was, and he started working as an A&R for an upstart music label, but he kept feeling drawn to the personal development space, and that's that's kind of where everything came together in terms of his purpose and his calling as he started working with entertainment and wellness leaders who were frequently on stage and in front of camera and he wanted to help them get camera ready which means helping them find their most authentic voice anyway this was a very timely interview because obviously it coincides with the documentary i think the next installment comes out today and it also catapulted Caduce back to the forefront of Kanye's journey, because that's kind of the thing that he's been known for in the entertainment industry. And it dropped right after Caduce's popular TED Talk came out, which is titled The Truth About Fame. And Caduce has also been recently profiled in Vice Magazine in this long-form think piece, which is all about his transition from being an MTV VJ to finding his calling as a personal development coach for entertainment industry types. And now he's the go-to guy for many creative projects with massive tech companies. And needless to say, Caduce has been on an interesting personal and professional journey. And of course, we'll fill in all the gaps during our conversation. So without further ado, let's get to my conversation with Mr. Caduce Philippe. Caduce, Caduce, it's an honor having you on the podcast. Great to sir. be here. Great to be here, <laughs> sir. <laughs> I feel like this conversation was a long time coming, and it's ironic that it's happening now because it coincides with the debut of the recent Kanye West documentary on Netflix, which you obviously were featured in. And it was in a very pivotal way, I think, for that first episode to help steer Kanye towards the platforms that he ultimately wanted to use to help him and his journey of becoming a rapper. So we'll talk about that a little bit later. I like to start the conversations off talking about the earlier days. And I know Caduce is not your first name. What did they call you when you were growing up? What did your parents call you? Benny would be my mom's way of saying it. Ben would be the way my friends say it. And then yeah. Benjamin is the way my father would say it. So the people back in Canada know you as Benny or Benjamin or, or Ben. Ben. Yeah, most most of Ben. And then I changed my name at around 17 to okay. take out my middle name, Caduce. Talk about growing up, man. What were some of your favorite toys or activities when you were a kid? Because you were only child, right? No, I have an older brother. Okay. How much yeah, older is he? Eight. Two years older. Okay. So that you guys were pretty close then. 
Oh yeah. He's still one of my best friends. It's good. It's, it's a really uh, beautiful thing to have somebody to uh, reflection around childhood with. That's the main mm-hmm. thing. Once in a while, we'll have these conversations that only him and I can have about right. what happened with our parents and how it was being raised that way. And it was, re- it was a really beautiful thing. So I still really appreciate my brother's presence in my life. So what were some of your favorite activities as a kid? Wrestling with my brother. I would always lose. I don't know why I would actually want to wrestle again because he would always throw me to the other side of the room. But that was one thing. I would say I used to play with marbles. And those little marbles, you'd, you'd have a game of trying to get one marble closer to the other kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I'd play marbles a lot. I would uh, also look at insects around like they were in my science lab and try to figure out what their lives were like. <laughs> things like that. Ridiculous things like that. When you were wrestling with your brother, would you initiate it or would he come and pick on you and then you'd like, you know, get baited into a, a wrestling match? <laughs> no, I, I was always the initiator. He never wanted to fight because he always knew how to beat me. He's a big guy, two years older, mm-hmm. but much bigger and stronger. So mm-hmm. he never wanted to beat me up, but I always wanted to somehow get a rematch and think that I was going to win and never turned out that way. So... I think my brother just got bored of that. What was the vibe like in your house in general? You know, your parents, did they have any philosophies or any kind of ideologies that they would echo a lot as you, you and your brother were growing up around <laughs> like, you got to work hard or you got to do this, or you got to do that or anything like that? Oh, for sure. For sure. My, my dad was the hardest working Haitian immigrant you ever want to meet. He had his own mm-hmm. dentistry practice and worked 23 hours a day on putting food on the table. So there's the work ethic from him. And my mom was always super curious. She always have a million questions and feel really entitled to everything that happened to be communicated to her by the end of the day. (laughs) Mm -hmm. A beautiful thing, like a really wonderful curiosity. And so I developed that from her. So that, that was the environment. And my brother, I mean, he was so heads down trying to be an NBA player. Wow. So it was great to see that focus. And then he got injured in his last year of university pretty badly. So he got into coaching after all, but yeah, he was on track to be a pro ball player. He was really, really gifted. And so his focus around that was incredible to see. So between those three influences, it's, it's uh, it was a pretty inspired house. And if you had to identify a track that you were on, what would that track have looked like as a young person? I was basically the class clown. And so I was on track to, basically be homeless and <laughs> not functional society. Now, I, I think that the main thing I was on track for is a good time. I always had a good time. I always wanted to give people around me a good time. I was a DJ through high school. And then I became a VJ on MTV. And then I started to do artist development and more other things that would be the genesis of a good time. But that's mm-hmm. basically the through line. It's like always wanting to bring joy in such a rhythmic way most of the time and then it evolved into self-development and making that a little bit more fun and so that's been the through line i think more than anything so i want to fill in some of those gaps for the viewers and listeners you used to make these playlists for the basketball team yeah 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 because i wasn't really a great basketball player and i wanted to add value since i was on the team i decided since i wasn't going to get playing time i was going to invest in putting together a mixtape so that we can at least have something good to warm up to bring that mm-hmm. good time. 
And so <laughs> that was basically the genesis of my life as a DJ was just trying to add value like that. And so that spun into being a campus radio DJ and all of that. So anyway, that was the genesis of my whole career. And what was your relationship with Much Music, which was Canada's version of MTV? Like I used to watch MTV and VH1 growing up, you know, and that was basically where you saw the popular songs get played and the videos get played over and over and over. And then there was this thing called the box where you could actually request a video. And so it was a very big part of my childhood. And you and I are not that far apart age-wise. So, but I wasn't familiar with much music. Was that something that you would invest hours and hours every oh my God, day or every I, week? If there was a degree in that channel, I would get a degree and have a formal education in that channel because I watched it more than I did my homework. That's for damn sure. So yeah, absolutely. Much music was it. Much music was the place where I, I watched guys like Master T, who was my favorite VJ on Much Music. And he would interview people like Madonna when she came through. And he had this really amazing style. He had these long dreads. He's a black man with his bangles all on his arms. And he had this unshakable cool no matter who he's interviewing and he always got the best out of people it was amazing so that was one big influence but yeah much music was a big deal there was a show called rap city that was where i saw so many of my favorite mcs spit and so that was an incredible show that was the best place for music and culture in canada would your friends at the time would they have described you as being an outgoing person? Were you an extrovert or were you introverted or what was your social archetype like in those days? <laughs> I think I was an introvert, but I felt like I needed to be an extrovert. And so I was mm. always straddling that part of myself that needed to be alone. And then the other part of me that needed some validation <laughs> to fill up this like notion of success in the world, I think on some level, the beginning of my life. And then, you know, eventually once you get done proving yourself or thinking you've proven yourself. So now you're at University of Ottawa, you're studying philosophy. Philosophy is not exactly the major you choose to go into music or entertainment. So what what was your thinking? (laughs) What was your thinking around that choice? Well, at that point, the best books that I'd read were philosophical. There were books like Seed of the Soul, Conversations with God, all sorts of books. I mean, it was really Conversations with God that had me really thinking more along the lines of that's the conversation I want to have more of. I want to get to the heart of some of these different traditions. And so philosophy was a way to get to that. And people like Alan Watts and Joseph Campbell. I mean, these are people that I studied basically my last couple of years of high school. And so mm-hmm. when it came time to picking a major, that seemed like the right pick. <laughs> How does a, someone in high school come across conversations with God and Alan Watts and this kind of thing? I think it was really just digging in deeper with a lot of the people I was inspired by. Like if I were to listen to Lauren Hill, for example, and then she'd reference something that she got from one of these books, then it would have me read that book, you know? So for Mm -hmm. any given hip hop icon I grew up on, like KRS-One, for example, was one of my favorite rappers. If he referenced something, I would look it up and research it. So that's mostly how I came across different thinkers like that. It's crazy, right? 
the rap was your gateway to spirituality. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> in a sense. Yeah, you listen to the right hip-hop artists. I mean, that'll get you right. Something else that you and I share that I don't think you knew about is that I actually auditioned to be an MTV VJ. I think it was in 95 or 96 or something like that. This mm-hmm. is back in the real world days, back in the beach house days. Yeah. And I didn't get selected. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think it was? Why do, you th- why do you think you didn't get selected? You know, it's funny. I'm going to ask you about that. But knowing what I know now from just having been around that industry living in Los Angeles, I wasn't as confident in my own authenticity, my own uniqueness as I am, say, today, right? Like today, I'm unapologetic about being myself. I'm more honest about myself, about being myself. Back then, I was more of a caricature of what I thought they wanted to see in those auditions. And now what I realize, if I'm just myself apologetically and opinionated and saying things that may not be conventional, that I truly believe, because I had to look for it. I just didn't, I just wasn't secure enough in myself. Okay. So anyway, same way I was, same way I was, that's the exact same way I was during the much music VJ search. You just described the the experience of being on camera for the first time nationally and definitely feeling like I needed to put something on and not feeling like uh I could just be myself. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. What made you even think you could be a VJ, being a self-described introvert? Was it about the fame? Was it about the money? Was it about the chicks? Like, what was your main motivation? It was the music. Because I was a DJ. Remember, when I got into university, even if it was just one semester, I was at the campus radio station, and I was actually a DJ. I wasn't really the host of the show. It was my friend Sam. And so when the VJ search was announced, I really didn't think too much about doing it because I was a DJ, not the one on the microphone for the most part. And then my brother had the notion 
that I should submit a demo reel. And he encouraged me enough to get on camera and film the demo tape. And then I put together the answers for the form and then sent it off. And I got chosen as one of the finalists. And lo and behold, when I talked to a producer who was in charge of choosing the finalist, they got flown to Toronto to do this live on-air audition. She said to me, the reason why they chose me was not necessarily because of my video. It was because I wrote what I wrote down in the form. She said it indicated that I knew who I was. And so anyway, it was interesting that it wasn't necessarily the video that got him. What was that final audition process like for you, if you can remember? Did you bring all that confidence with you into the process? Or? At that point, it was still not fully formed. I think it <laughs> required the right format to come out. You know, so at that point, writing was actually my comfort zone, but being on camera wasn't. And so there was this guy who was another finalist. His name's Bradford Howe, and he was so freaking confident. I mean, that guy had no insecurities going on for him that were getting in the way. Me, on the other hand, I just got more and more intimidated by the situation every time Bradford would take the mic and be this wizard, very, very confident guy and witty and smart and all these things that I didn't really think I was at the time. So for me, it was a different experience. It was still not being all together out of my cocoon. I was still in process. And so I ended up you know, being the runner up. Did you know after your audition that you didn't do as good as you probably could have and you probably are not going to get selected? Or do you think I'm, I'm still going to probably get selected and have well, my hopes what's up? Crazy, what's crazy is that Much Music was taking votes from the Canadian audience. So I was under the impression that I was actually winning. And it turns out I did have more votes than the guy who ended up getting chosen. So the executives at Much Music decided to not take Canadians votes into account and chose this guy Bradford anyway <laughs> so Bradford got it <laughs> Bradford got it and so I look back on it and I think I gave it the best that I had to give but at that point I really hadn't found my voice yet Talk about how that led to the MTV positions. That's an interesting story, the kind of yeah. indirect way to an even bigger thing. Yeah, you, yeah. We were up for initially. Yeah, so coming off the VJ search, I didn't feel that disappointed because I had an intuition that there was something else coming down the road. And so sure enough, I was visiting my old manager at the CD store that we used to work together at in my hometown. And now he was in downtown Toronto managing this other branch of it. And so I walk into the store just to check in on him, say hi. And he hears about the VJ search. He saw some of it. And he's basically realizing that there was an ad in a newspaper that he just saw looking for a new host for a co-hosting opportunity for a brand new show called Vox, which is a uh, brand new show that was coming out on TV Ontario, which is a really small public access level network. Great place to develop though, for someone like me who hadn't had that real exposure yet. And so this woman, Maria Ferrano was the producer of the show. I auditioned for her. She remembered me from the VJ search, thought I should have won. And so for her, it was a really easy choice. And so that was my first proper opportunity in television. Then I did a year of that 
as the co-writer of that as well for the segments that I hosted. And it was a really great opportunity to develop that voice. And then sure enough, a friend of mine from back in my hometown in Ottawa, this guy, Ben Barry, who I'd met in the modeling days while I was modeling back in Ottawa. And he kept a point of watching my trajectory and like being helpful when he could. And he said, hey, listen, I see what you've been doing with the VJ search and Vox. Can you put together a demo tape? I'll send it to my aunt, who's a Hollywood agent, and maybe we can get you represented out there in Hollywood. And so that's how I ended up with my agent. She, his aunt, didn't watch this demo tape for like six months. It sat on her table as she represented Alicia Keys and Whitney Houston and so much more success than me, this friend of her nephew. It's like, it's just family. So, so he, she was like kicking it down the road while he was calling and saying, mm-hmm. hey, have you checked out my friend's demo tape? Until she finally watched it like six months later. And then she was like, all right, he's got some talent. So next time he's in New York, we'll set him up with a junior agent there and see how it goes. What was your plan B? Did you have a fallback or safe plan in case this whole thing didn't work out as you were at Vox? Because I don't know. I'm sure Vox wasn't really paying a whole lot of money, I can imagine. And you're now a young, young man, young adult. How are you going to make your dent in the universe? What was your thinking? Well, at the time I was doing two things. I was modeling and Mm -hmm. I was doing this show. And between those two things and once in a while still doing some music stuff, it was actually plenty. It was plenty for me. And it felt like out of the three, something was going to pop, something was going to work in such a way where I wouldn't have to worry. But really my focus was how can I become a host? on a network like Much Music. And really, I just focused on getting back on Much Music. Like that was actually my only goal. And so I was kind of of banging my head on a wall, actually trying to get in there and get a hosting position after all. I didn't really think something like MTV was even possible. I hadn't really thought about that. And so it's interesting because the way it played out, (laughs) the way Ben Barry came into the fold, got me with William Morris, And then being in New York, getting the meeting with MTV meant a quantum leap. So somewhere in there, I did a a landmark forum seminar that really helped to catalyze a different level of possibility thinking, like really starting to envision an even bigger career than I started to think about at that point. And then sure enough, it all happened. So (laughs) that was basically in a nutshell how I got on MTV. So that's interesting. I didn't know that part about the story. You did a personal development course, uh, one of those weekend courses. This one was landmark. There are others out there. Usually at the end of those courses, you have to state like a project, something that may seem impossible to your smaller self, but mm-hmm. you know, you want to kind of enroll yourself into this larger vision. What was that project for you, if you remember? It was being a talk show host for a music network. And I ended mm-hmm. up Getting the MTV gig. <laughs> is that amazing? Do you think that was like the law of attraction or do you actually take some conscious steps in that direction to make that happen? In addition to your friend's aunt working at MTV, did you tell her, hey, and you set up a meeting or how, how did that meeting actually come to fruition? Yeah. So basically when she saw my demo tape, she said, okay, set up the meeting with the junior agent. Boom. I walked into the meeting with the junior agent. It's got Kenny Goodman, who's now 
representing the biggest stars in Hollywood. He's at the time a, a brand new agent. And within five minutes of sitting there and talking with me, he was like, you'd be perfect for MTV. Let me call my guy, Scott Venner over there, who was a talent development executive. Got Scott on the phone, convinced him to see me the next day and boom. So that's how that happened. <laughs> what was it about you that you think he saw that made him think you'd be perfect for MTV? I think he saw someone who was really passionate about music. Cause at the end of the day, I didn't really look like any VJs that had been on the network at the time. I had this big, really wild looking sideshow Bob Afro going on and really bad style. Actually. It's amazing that you saw past that <laughs> like really bad style. I saw the audition tape photo the other day, uh, but anyway, I think it was, it was definitely the fact that I really love music. And I talked about it with so much passion, so much enthusiasm. And I think that's ultimately what had me cut through the noise. Cause at the time they weren't even looking for MTV VJs. They weren't even looking to cast anyone new. And so I think it was a refreshing take on what it meant to be an MTV VJ at the time for me to come along and just be so passionate about music. That was it. I was like a true DJ at the time. And so that was really my reference point for what I was going to be talking about was how much I love records and music. And that was it. And, and I think that really cut through. It sounds like you were a bit of a philosopher DJ, right? Like you've been, <laughs> you've been studying all of these esoteric and Eastern texts and philosophies. So it's inevitable that some of that may come through your passion or your questions that you ask to the artists. Do you think that that also played a role in sort of making you stand out above whoever else they were considering? I think so. I think so. My approach was definitely a very humanitarian approach to interviewing mm -hmm. and making a point of platforming people in a way that was really wanting to depict them as they are and not trying mm -hmm. to spin anything, mm -hmm. you know? So I think that definitely was one of the ways that came through. Yeah. That's a great question. Were you surprised when they created that position for you at MTV? I definitely wasn't expecting it. And so <laughs> when I walked out of the office, matter of fact, I didn't think I did particularly well because Scott had a poker face the whole time. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't know what to make of that. And I made up that I wasn't charming enough. I wasn't funny enough. I wasn't smart enough. And I walked out of that office thinking, nope, that ain't happening. And then sure enough, two days later, Kenny Goodman called me and said, hey, they want you to become a VJ. Yeah, Eddie Change Murphy has this anecdote when he interviewed for when he auditioned for Saturday Night Live back in the 80s or whatever it was. He said that there were the three people who were in charge of casting for Saturday Night Live. And they said, okay, do something funny. And he does this bit that he thought was hilarious. And he said, one of the, oh, the only reaction he got was one of the guys that goes, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I did one thing. I did, I, I did one thing in the interview with this guy, Scott that elicited a response from him because he asked mm -hmm. me the question straight away. He asked me, why do you want to be a VJ on MTV? And I go, well, cause I can't sing like Maxwell and this is the next best thing. And so at that point he laughed and I thought, okay, I'm not bombing that bad, but <laughs> that was basically <laughs> the only response I got. He like gave me a little smile <laughs> based mm -hmm. on that joke, but it was real though. I mean, that's the thing about, what happened in that interview, I just got really real about how much I love music and geeked out for the entire duration of the meeting. 
Hmm. And that's what made the difference, I think, ultimately. So I think for anyone listening, I think it's so key to just own our passion, own our Mm -hmm. enthusiasm for something and try to temper it for other people's frequency, you know? It's like really allow for that. You described your experience as having a good amount of imposter syndrome, even though you'd already been on Vox. So you already had some reps under your belt, so to speak, with BJing and stuff. What did you experience that was different about that particular position? What you weren't expecting that you ended up experiencing in the earlier days of being a BJ? I think the level of imposter syndrome I felt was Mm -hmm. absolutely crushing. Did you get panic attacks and stuff before going on air and all that? I did. I did. I had a few panic attacks at one point down in Key West, Florida. My first assignment with MTV was the beach house in Key West, Florida, 2001. I'll never forget it. It was so hot. And I felt like I had to perform incredibly perfect to get the job because I was looking around and seeing guys like Carson Daly and all sorts of brilliant people st- stars i cisco from drew hill <laughs> all sorts <laughs> of people singing about the dog song at the time i mean it was a scene and so i made up that i needed to be absolutely perfect in order to be a part of this scene because at that point i never experienced any stardom like this before any platform like this i was from the most humble beginnings in canada and here i am all of a sudden in the midst of all these pop stars So I had major imposter syndrome, major, major fraud in my mind. Like somehow I'd snuck into the coolest party and they were going to figure me out any minute. They're going to figure out that I'm not nearly as cool as everybody a year. (laughs) They're going to figure out that I'm not smart. I dropped out, blah, blah, blah. Like I just had imposter syndrome, like paralyzing imposter syndrome. Will Smith talks about in his early days of, uh, the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, his imposter syndrome was so strong that he would memorize everybody's lines in each episode. And if you look closely, you could actually see him mouthing other people's lines as he's listening, <laughs> waiting for his turn to deliver his lines. And what was your version of that? Were you spending a lot of time researching whoever you're going to be interviewing or did you do anything like that, that kind of to compensate <laughs> for whatever you felt you were lacking? I wish I had a script like that to work off of and my time putting my focus on something productive. No, I had all the time off of the world. I only had these small segments, maybe every couple of days. And so I, mine was like a situation where the idle mind was the devil's playground. You know? so anyway, I didn't have anything I could work on like a script. I basically didn't even know if I was going to be interviewing people. So I couldn't necessarily prepare for that. So it was just me hanging out. Key West, Florida, walking the streets, trying to make the best of my time. And I suppose I could have figured out some other hobby to develop Mm. myself in that direction. But no, I just basically imploded instead. (laughs) Well, Carson gave you some advice, some career advice (laughs) when you took over. I did did ask Carson. I said, what kind of advice can you give me? And he goes, oh, be yourself and have fun. Oh, and don't date girls in the industry. That's the other one. (laughs) 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 Don't date girls in the industry because he just come off some really bad breakups. And that was my advice for my 
mentor of sorts for the moment. So funny when I was going through the insomnia and people were hearing about these panic attacks of me fainting backstage and all sorts of stuff. Carson sees me walking in the parking lot as he's pulling out and he, as he's driving by me, stops, rolls down his window and he goes, hey kid, I hear you're having a hard time sleeping. Try smoking some weed. And then he drives off. <laughs> Profound mentorship right there. Take us to that moment of you having your first interaction with Kanye that's depicted in the documentary genius. Cause that's, oh, that's yeah. kind of where we are right now. Right. Yeah. What was your yeah, impression geniuses. of Kanye when you first met him? Well, he was hungry. He was humble. Mm-hmm. He was hungry and he was not going to hold back from sharing where he's at. He was very clear about, Hey, I need a, you hear it first segment. I'd actually never heard an artist be that direct with me about what they needed in such a way mm-hmm. where it really empowered me to go ahead and just make it happen. <laughs> so I was really amazed with his direct ask and how bold he was in it, how shameless he was about it, but also how humble he was. He really was humble at the time. <laughs> it's hard to believe. <laughs> I mean, but I think Kanye has a different sort of humility. I'll say he's humble to the downloads that he receives and delivering on that. Like he obeys that part of him that he thinks is like spirit being channeled through him to create something. That's what he reports to now. You had a couple of conflicts, like the producers wanted you to interview in a certain way. You decided that you didn't want to do that. So can you tell a couple of stories or anecdotes about those experiences that helped really shape you stepping into how you wanted to show up as a, as a BJ would ultimately probably led to you hitting the eject button. Yeah. There was definitely a few moments where I felt really compromised in terms of what I was being asked to ask on air. And so one of them was with Kanye the day after the VMAs happened down in Florida and there was an after party that was honoring Suge Knight and Kanye happened to be there. And no, sorry, the other way around, it was honoring Kanye and Suge Knight happened mm-hmm. to be there. And then Suge Knight got shot. And then there was a lot of questions about what happened and it was all over the headlines the next day. And then Kanye happened to be coming on Total Request Live that day to deliver a music video. And so that's what he was coming for, not to talk about the incident the night before, but that's what we felt like as a team, people would want from an interview with Kanye the next day after something like that happened. And so sure enough, the producer was with Kanye backstage in the green room while I was across the studio backstage getting ready, not being able to understand exactly what happened in this conversation between the producer and Kanye in this pre-interview where basically Kanye said to her flat out, I don't want to talk about what happened last night at all. Because obviously he didn't want to get implicated in that in any way, shape or form. Makes sense. He was only there to deliver the music video. Meanwhile, I was on the other side of the studio, didn't know exactly how that conversation transpired, but then five minutes out from going live, the producer comes and updates me. And her recounting of that conversation with Kanye is that he would prefer not to talk about what happened last night. And so she wasn't really altogether clear with me about just how adamant he was about not being in that conversation, but that's really what he was. And so then I decided I could at least mention what happened last night and then pivot quickly to a more open-ended question that didn't corner Kanye 
mm-hmm. into having to talk about that. So that was my thinking behind it. What happened was that he stopped listening as soon as I referenced to last night. All of a sudden, he wasn't listening and then just decided to yell at the producer off camera, who she was like right beside the camera, live on national television, yelled at her. I told you not to ask me that. <laughs> and so awkward as could be on live television, I go, hey, okay, all right. Well, let's go to the next video of the countdown. <laughs> it's so awkward. <laughs> so once we both get off camera, we both look at each other apologetically about what just happened. It was mortifying. And that was a moment where I really had to check in with how is this happening that a friend of mine comes on my show and then it gets weird like that. I had to really reconcile with that. So led me to ask a lot of tough questions and end up leaving the network. There was also the incident with your hair, right? You decided to wear your hair a different way. Yeah. Yeah. So producer from the show happened to be bumping into me behind the scenes as I was on my way out to do a dress rehearsal for this Total Quest Live episode later on that day. And he sees that I've blown out my Afro, kind of like Quest Love from the Roots. I got the big old Afro now, blown out that day. Usually I didn't wear it like that. Usually I had them in like very convenient little curls. And that day I was going to blow it out and really own my blackness on another level. And so as I'm walking down the hallway towards the studio, this producer stops me and he says, hey, isn't that kind of black for our show? Isn't that a little bit too black for our show? And of course, I didn't know how to respond to that. This is (laughs) pre-2020 when sometimes we didn't know microaggression when it happened to us. And that was definitely a weird one. And I don't have any huge judgments about that because... Honestly, sometimes I think people just have blind spots around how that occurs to other people when they say things like that. You know, it's so easy to write it off and say that's racist, but you know, I try as much as possible to understand where people are coming from. And so in that moment, I don't think he meant to offend me. I don't think he meant to hurt me. But nowadays, people can get educated on that. And so I think there's a little less compassion nowadays after 2020. But it still happens, so we still get to navigate it somehow. Looking at your life at that moment in time from the outside in, Mm -hmm. I'm a kid, I'm watching MTV, I'm seeing you in Key West, Florida, hosting and hanging out with all these really cool, famous people. Someone might conclude that you're living your passion, that you found your purpose, that you are in your calling. But Mm -hmm. talk about how you felt at that time. Did you feel like that was your your passion, your calling, your purpose? And whatever you do describe it feeling like, what was that sensation? Because obviously you've found it Mm -hmm. since that point. So I'm just going to set up the juxtaposition of what that felt like versus what you're doing these days. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, I think what happened was I got really excited about the prospect of being around music, facilitating people getting great music in their life. And I thought that would fulfill on my dream because I saw the impact that music had with me, how it made me feel actually okay in my own skin. You know, when I was able to dance, when I was able to sing along to these songs, 
the impact was huge on me. Music was my medicine growing up. So all I knew was sharing good music was a mission I could get behind. And then what happened was, I think what Landmark provided me was a bigger conversation to be a part of, something that really cut to the heart of so much of what molds someone's experience, which is not necessarily the music that they're listening to, but it's the mindset that they have. And so the fact that that helped me catalyze my mindset to be able to meet the moment or create the moment, depending on how you look at it, <laughs> to become this MTV VJ and have my dream job turn out, it was like a proof of theory that I experienced in the landmark seminar to actually experience it. And then on the other side of being in that and being an MTV VJ, I started to really think about what I could support other people with in the same way, because that was the conversation that helped me out. You know, so it was one of these dilemmas of my dream had been this job for so long, but then this thing that I did, this conversation opened up the ability in me to actually create that. So which conversation is more important at that point? And so now I'm in the dance of figuring out how to make them all work. And I think podcasting is the type of medium that allows for that sort of a mindful and transformational conversation to happen. But in the business of TV hosting, there wasn't really that kind of platform. It's not that kind of conversation that happens at these entertainment news outlets that I was working with or MTV for that matter. So I started to yearn for a bigger conversation, a deeper conversation, a, a more impactful conversation. So how does it work logistically? Is your contract up for renewal? You decide I'm not going to renew it or did you not get offered to come back or you decided you got offered, but you decided to reject the offer. What was the actual exit strategy? Well, I actually had talked to my team about leaving a year and a half before I actually left. And I said, listen, mm -hmm. this is what I'm thinking. I'm not feeling really fulfilled anymore. I'm feeling like not really creatively fulfilled. Because at that point, I had actually almost started a record label on the side. It was through Sony at the time. Mm -hmm. And I had a group that I'd actually met through Dead Prez. You know Dead Prez? I heard of Dead Prez. Yeah, I don't, I'm not familiar with his work. So Dead Prez is one of my favorite hip-hop groups from back in the day. And they mm -hmm. had this opening act called Rise and Shine. And they had done a single deal with Ruckus Records at the time. And so <laughs> if you look this up, you might be able to find it. It's real good hip-hop. And so... They were the group that I was going to sign for this record label, but then MTV caught wind of it and pulled me into their office. The executives that uh, were in charge of MTV at the time decided I had to have a sit down about this possible record label I was going to start. And so we talked about it and they said, we'd prefer you focus on being a host here at MTV. Meanwhile, Carson at the time had a record deal, record label. And so for some reason, I wasn't having the same sort of liberty to explore this thing, which is a big passion of mine. You know, when I look at what I love the most, it's actually putting people in a position to win versus being the one that interviews the person once they've won. See, the difference for me was like huge. I was like more of a catalytic inspiration and guide to navigate the genesis of something versus the one who's just like celebrating at the end. That's what it felt like. TRL was like a big celebration. And I think for a lot of people, that's the mountaintop. But for me to be a part of someone transforming into the person that ends up on the mountaintop, way more interesting. Mm -hmm. And then my team convinced me to stay for another year. 
to establish myself some more. And so I spent that last year at MTV thinking about leaving a lot. <laughs> but I still did my job, you know, I still had fun. But it's like hanging in a relationship when you know it's not going all the way. And so oh, that was... Yeah, we all know what like. that feels like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So how many years total were you at MTV? Five years. Okay. 2001 to 2006. And then you transitioned into A&R? Or did yeah, you eventually so start that? I didn't end up starting my own record label because I ended up working with MySpace Records fresh mm-hmm. off of coming off MTV. MySpace had a joint venture deal with Interscope Records. And I found this great artist named Mateo, who's now back to his mm-hmm. original name of Iman Jordan. So mm-hmm. that, that was my artist that I signed. I almost got Drake on. And I was actually the first A&R to bring Drake into an A&R meeting at MySpace. How did you find Drake in some club, some, some <laughs> nightclub in, in Toronto? Well, the funny thing was he was charting on the MySpace records chart. And, and, and like our, our chart was based on the MySpace platform. And mm-hmm. so basically we got to see what independent artists were emerging on the platform. And he was consistently at the top. And then a friend of mine sent me his mixtape comeback season. And this is a friend of mine from back in the MTV, the much music VJ search. His name's uh, Curtis Morgan. He actually made a point of saying, you need to sign this guy, Drake. Mm -hmm. You know, you might recognize him from Degrassi high. In fact, he actually came by MTV as an actor on Degrassi high when I was there. And he was interviewed by me on MTV. And then after (laughs) the interview, Drake and I were walking down the hall and at that point it was Aubrey. So we're walking down the hall and he says to me, yo, this acting stuff is cool, but I'm really excited about making music. And I was like, Oh, good luck with that. That sounds incredible. You know? And then sure enough, he developed himself into the artist who was at the top of the MySpace chart. So for me, it made a lot of sense. You know, I was like, let's bring him in, see how he is and then give him a big record deal. And then he came in and he didn't have a manager at the time. This was before little Wayne got his hands on him. Mm-hmm. And so imagine Drake before any hype, really just the chart on MySpace and this comeback season mixtape, but he started to get some buzz. And so he was feeling really good about it. And talking about being the king of the city already and all that, like putting Toronto on and Cardinal official somewhere rolling probably, but you know, there's like a lineage in Toronto and it's interesting, like everybody contributed to everybody to basically get to the point where Drake could be who he is, you know, Cardinal Fishall was one of those people. So Cardinal actually had a verse on this comeback season mixtape and contributed to Drake's rise too. So anyway, it's a really incredible moment where he was just hungry trying to break through. It's kind of like when Ye was a producer, but trying to break through as a rapper this was Drake as an actor trying to break through as a rapper. And right. so it's incredible that point where we connected. It's very similar in trajectory to when Kanye and I actually connected. And so the difference was now I was at MySpace Records instead of being at MTV. And MySpace Records was ultimately run by Tom, everybody's first friend on MySpace. And so anyway, we set the music over to Tom to get approval to move forward. And Tom, didn't respond to this email for weeks. And so we missed out on signing Drake. And of course, now when I bump into my A&R director, he's always like, you told us so. 
it worked out though because Drake got signed by Little Wayne, and I'm pretty sure Wayne wouldn't have been nearly as interested or invested in signing Drake the way he did and giving him all the credibility that that gave him if he was tied up already with MySpace. So I think it worked out for Drake ultimately. <laughs> But for our label, when I look back at it, I say, I told y'all. You had some notoriety, obviously, from your days on television, five years, you know, every day, potentially you're on television and now you're doing A&R. Would you say that you were feeling more fulfilled or was it just a different type of fulfillment working in A&R? Like, do you feel like I found it now? Now I'm, I'm in my true purpose. It, it was definitely something I took very seriously. and. Love being in the studio, working with artists like Mateo. We worked on a whole mixtape together and it was incredible. I remember doing a poem actually as part of that mixtape and being able to write a poem and perform a poem on this mixtape was incredible. And it started to light a fire for all the other things that I want to say. And so being a creative director for a project like that, combined with being able to direct music videos for some of these artists I was working with, talking to, developing in whatever way I was, all of that was so interesting. It was a different level of creativity, different level of storytelling, different mediums I was starting to play with. Because at the time, I was starting to invest in new media like Yahoo at the time and AOL mm -hmm. and MySpace. We had a thing called the MySpace music feed. And so working with them as well and starting to really build out what Web 2.0 was and all the new mm -hmm. media of that world. We started live streaming for the first time. Can you imagine now everyone's live streaming through their Instagram? But at the time, anytime we would produce a live stream was a huge global media breakthrough. Like we, we did the Avatar world premiere live stream and it was record-breaking at the time. So it was a really interesting time to be swerving lanes and leaving traditional media, developing artists, developing new media. It was incredible, super fun. What did you, Caduce, bring to the industry as an A&R, having had these experiences in front of the camera? Like, what were you known for? What was your perspective that you brought to that role? Well, that made you stand out? I think the fact that I had identified Kanye early was one mm -hmm. of those things that helped everybody to understand my ear and how I was able to hear things first and be able to identify that they were going to cut through the noise and impact culture. That was probably the thing I was known for the most and still am. You know, mm -hmm. so things like the genius documentary coming out and showing everyone a moment like that. And being able to connect some dots and introduce some people and that being like the way that the traditional taste making would happen, right? It wouldn't be based on numbers that sometimes are inflated online. That's how a lot of A&Rs operate now. They just do it like math. But it used to be that we would really need to have that goosebump kind of thing and then move on it. You were also getting involved in different philanthropic endeavors as well. What was the inspiration for that? Well, there was a trip that I made with a friend of mine who had a great organization, giving solar-generated lights out in Haiti. And so mm -hmm. he had a bunch of us go down to Haiti with him and got to explore where my father's from and got to see what kind of environment people were living in, different kind of resources or lack thereof that people had. And so it really inspired me to think more about my social impact. 
and mm-hmm. what I could do that could make a difference in a more sustainable way, let's say. So coming back from that trip, I got involved with an organization called Generosity Water, which is now called Generosity. They have since created a whole bottle of water line. And so anyway, Generosity Water, Generosity was a really great cause and still is. Still builds clean water wells all over the world. But at the time, I was so overzealously excited to make a difference that I decided to jump on their board. And soon after I became one of their directors of partnership and started to fundraise. And the whole thing was really addictive, actually, to be able to make that kind of impact to see a donation come in and then see the impact on the grounds in that community, getting a chance to have clean water. So I got involved with that for some time for about three years. Did that play a role in you deciding to kind of move out of music full-time and into personal development space after seeing that impact? Yeah, yeah. For me, it definitely became addictive because then I could actually draw a straight line. With entertainment and media, it's a little bit harder to qualify impact because when a piece of content goes out, maybe you hear about it through some people on social media now that would say, hey, this impacted me in this way. And then you'll have some idea of the scope. Uh, but for me, some something like building a clean water well in a place like Haiti and then getting video and images six months later about these people in the village being able to have health in a different way, there was no comparison, you know? And, and then to start thinking about that as a facilitator of these transformational trainings and seeing how over a weekend so much can be transformed within someone to be able to have a different life on the other side of that experience. It's definitely a deeper impact that I've been craving my whole life. So being a TV host was one level of impact, but I think there's so many levels of it. Now that you've been out of the spotlight in that way for a while, looking back at the fame and notoriety that you would have, what would you say are the pros and cons of that versus kind of being a little bit more anonymous in a public eye because that's a different type of of life than being on camera all the time yeah i mean when i look back at my time on camera it kind of feels like a truman show where Mm -hmm. i'm asking for more attention and in some ways that can go really well because then you have more of a platform to point people to different things that you're passionate about but then On the other hand, nowadays, you're expected to be this public figure that's constantly accessible to paparazzi, any event you go to, everyone feels entitled to know who you're dating, all that kind of stuff. So there's massive downside. And for me, stepping away from the spotlight was really about finding my truth. And I felt like I had a lot of things internally that were not really conducive to me finding my truth on camera in that kind of a spotlight. So I needed to step back to really find that. And that's what I've been doing. So it's been an incredible journey. I mean, the freedom that I felt beyond the spotlight to just explore and not feel like I need to keep up with anyone's expectation of me. It's been really liberating, really liberating. Did you enjoy a lot of the like people coming up to you and saying, oh, you know, I love you and you're amazing. And did you enjoy all of that? Or was that kind of hard for you sometimes? It was all right. I mean, the thing is, it's not really what I was in it for. 
I was more in it for the experience of that first spark, that putting a song on. But there was like a ripple effect, which was interesting and very similar. You know, someone gets excited seeing me, I guess, in some ways, that's like putting a record on for them. <laughs> but it felt like it was about me in some ways. And I don't think I was really in a place to receive that kind of love because I still hadn't really found self-love at the time. So I think I had a hard time to allow that kind of attention and feel okay about it. I think I got weird. It got weird for me. <laughs> Put it simply. How did you come to find self-love? What was that journey like? Oh, well, stepping away from the spotlight and not being of value in that way allowed me to see where I could be of value without that kind of spotlight. And it was a beautiful thing to feel like who I am is not predicated on my job. And I think that theory, that notion is something that I could only really prove while not having that kind of a job <laughs> in my mind. So in a sense, it's been this big social experiment to see if I could actually let go of that kind of attention and find fulfillment in other ways and in ways that are more authentic, meaning like they don't need validation. Cause I've done some shit that has not been validated. <laughs> Truly just from heart level passion. And I don't think we'll ever see a headline, but they feel like some of the most important moments of my life. Well, you eventually started your own sort of personal development course around media training, which is the thing that you were, that's kind of, in my eyes, that's where it all comes together. You take the experiences you had on camera and you take the experiences you had that you, you say to your, you know, that were very profound, the, tr the landmark transformational course, and you created your own course out of mm -hmm. that. And you've worked with some really high level people. Yeah. In that regard. yeah it's been amazing. It's been amazing to develop people who are really committed to making a difference. It's been amazing. That's been the, the so, biggest through line. <laughs> people who really have that earnest desire to make an impact. That's who ends up coming to these trainings with me. <laughs> so what have you identified as the sort of main tenets of that? People who are already maybe in the early stages of being a public leader or maybe they're on stage or maybe they're on camera when they work with you what do they realize that they were missing that was basically holding the back i would say if i had to put it in one category be owning all of their greatness owning all of their greatness because i think sometimes we have a hard time with that level of ownership it comes with it a certain level of i would say pressure if you really take it on but mm -hmm. it's good it's like the pressure that makes diamonds how does one identify what their greatness is in order to own it? Yeah, that's part of the challenge for a lot of people and not being in that level of awareness until you know, we have another person dedicated to see those things that might be a blind spot. That's really my role in these kind of coaching dynamics is to just point out any blind spots and provide more of a 10,000 foot view so they can really see the whole scope of who they are. Without giving names, do you have a case study or an example of someone you work with who couldn't see something that you could see and then you pointed it out and then it converted into them owning their greatness? 
Yeah, I would say one of my favorites is Amber Ray. Are you familiar with Amber Ray? Of course, yeah. Yeah, so Amber, when she came, was already a force of nature. Sure. But she wanted to have a different level of freedom in the way that she would flow through these interviews because she was about to launch her book, Wonder Over Worry. And so she was about to mm-hmm. have all of these podcast interviews, be in all these situations where she really wanted to flow. She wanted to not feel so constrained and controlled in the way that she's communicating. And so she came to our trainings to develop that level of flow and ease and authenticity, that moment to moment spark that she wanted to feel like she was really being present with people in these interviews and ended up being a massive success. I mean, her book did really well and she did really well in all these interviews and sparked a lot of interest and grew her audience and it was an incredible thing to see. She ran with Mm. it. As you're stepping into this role of helping to shepherd people through their own transformational process, do you still have imposter syndrome at all? Of course. (laughs) One of the benefits of being in this documentary genius was getting to see how I've been for so many people, but mirrored back in a way that I couldn't deny it. You know, I couldn't turn away and make up that I, I wasn't that guy or I haven't been that guy for so many people. So that actually helped me to really own who I've been for a lot of different voices over the years. And, you know, especially that moment for Ye, it was so beautiful, you know, Re- reflected who I've been for people back to me in a way that imposter syndrome had no battle with. When did you become aware of the documentary? That was in development. That's <laughs> funny because I didn't even know it was in development. And so they premiered it at Sundance. And then I get a message on Twitter from this Time Magazine writer who had been mm-hmm. at the Sundance screening. And he asked if I could do an interview with him about my part in Kanye's journey. And he seemed like a cool enough guy. So I said, yeah. And then we did this interview where he told me about his experience of the seeing the movie in Sundance and I, I was blown away by the way he described it and I at that point also saw like Carson Daly on the Today Show referring to genius as biblical and not even being mm. sarcastic about that and so I started to get really excited about my involvement in the movie and then finally I just I talked to Cootie about the fact that I had had this interview with Time Magazine and I was like, I'm super curious to watch the movie. And then I got a, a preview link to watch it. And so anyway, the whole thing's been a magic carpet ride. It's been so excited to be a part of and I had no idea I was featured in it at all until it came out and being in that screening of it, I was like, just brought back to that moment, that moment where that night, Kwali decided to put Kanye on stage. That was when everything changed because I saw it. I saw the guy that we all now know as Ye back then. And so, of course, when he asked to get some help getting on MTV, I was happy to help him. It's also interesting because there's been a surge in interest about where's Caduce today. You know, you had this, <laughs> this TED Talk, Confessions of a... Former media influencer. Uh, and oh, no, no. I changed the title. I changed the title. It's The Truth About Fame. The Truth About Fame. And then there's the Vice article, Where's Caduce Now? Or something something to this effect. <laughs> so it's like you've entered back into a very public conversation. And then this thing comes out. And do you remember, Cootie, having the camera? Like when you guys were sitting on the on the 
it looked like you were sitting on a sidewalk or something when you were telling him about Sway and, you know, he was kind of talking to you about his experiences of, of getting yeah. more, more known as a yeah. rapper. Yeah. We were right in front of that venue, Irving Plaza, and he was about to rock. And then Tyler brought him on stage and did. did so that, that was that solid. night. That was that, that, was night, that night that you guys yeah. were talking. Okay. That was that night. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. And man, you knew Cootie at the time from, from zero. Was it uh, station zero. zero channel zero? Well, I didn't know Cootie that well, but I just knew that Kanye always had Cootie around. And so I was fine <laughs> with it because Cootie was so cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was just fun. It was always fun. Yay. Always had a lot of energy and Cootie always had good energy, always a pleasure to have around. So great coming up together. That's the way I look mm. at it is that basically I had gotten in the door a couple years prior, but mm -hmm. at the time the people that I started to hang out with in New York City at the time was all the people that built up the community, that hip hop community was Dead Prez. I remember going to a Dead Prez show when I first got to New York and hanging out with all of them made me feel like, oh, all right, so New York is a new city, but at least the thread that I can feel good about is hip hop. You know, this is the community that embraced me when I first got to New York, you know, most deaf, Kwali, like all of us came up together run in the streets there's a photo i saw us backstage downstairs at sobs after a concert it was feral munch it was consequence it was quality it was most yay was there mad skills i mean there i was with my big old afro amazing time to be there in new york city and to be into the hip-hop community it was amazing so that moment that they captured in Genius is how we would do. We would always look out for each other. I remember even years later when I first moved to LA after leaving MTV, I was getting into a club and Kwali was having a hard time. We didn't even come together, but there I, I was going into the club. I see Kwali trying to get into the club. And of course, I come out and get him and get him into the club. And that's, that's how we always did for each other. It was a solidarity, you know? So great mm. brotherhood. And that's what Genius is for me is looking at how the brotherhood played out over the course of mm -hmm. his career. And they brought all of you all, or as many of you that were around back together for the premiere of Genius. And you hosted it, right? Didn't they bring you <coughs> in to host it? Or co -host yeah, they, it? Had me, they had me moderate this conversation at SOBs, which is where so many of the favorites that I just mentioned, like Moats and Clyde, they would rock there. And so SOBs is a special spot celebrating its 40th anniversary. And so we decided we'd do it there. And it mm -hmm. was a great conversation with the guys who directed it, Chike and Cootie, some of the cast. And we had Consequence rap at one point. We had Jay Ivy do that verse that he did from Never Let Me Down, Kyle's Dropout mm -hmm. album. Mm -hmm. And we played some clips from behind the scenes that weren't in the movie that aired on Netflix. So Cootie had his laptop was out. And he was just pulling clips, like random clips. One clip from him and Diddy in a session. And you know, it's just wild. The kind of footage that's not even in the Netflix version that is still available. And Cootie was really generous that night. So it was a beautiful night. We celebrated. And we all felt like, you know, after all these years, there was no love lost. No love lost. Just all family. Mm -hmm. I've only seen the first two installments because I don't have the preview link that you had. but. As I've been watching it, I've been watching it with a big smile on my face because I can, you know, I recognize obviously a lot of the the faces and I just think it does a really great job of contextualizing the journey 
that journey of kind of like what you described in your childhood, like you, you picking these fights with your brother and you guys wrestling it out, even though you knew he could beat you, but maybe there was a glimmer, a little tiny bit of hope that maybe you would prevail. And it's like <laughs> that whole steel sharpened steel type of mentality, you know, like, yeah, I don't want to wrestle with somebody who I know I can beat. I want to wrestle with somebody who is going to make me stronger. And so yeah. I feel like that's what was, that was my big takeaway as I've been experiencing this. And I'm curious as someone who knows most of the people in the story, what has your takeaway been from watching this and being a part of it? It takes a village. It definitely takes a village because that's really why genius is so genius is that it does show you all the people along the way who supported Kanye and mm-hmm. we all need that support. And I think that's the thing in this Western culture, especially this individualistic glorification that's happened has got us away from being willing to receive support, ask for support. You know, most people operate with so much pride nowadays that they don't really understand the importance of just being humble and receiving support, having a community around you to build you up and encourage you and those things in genius. I mean, that's, that's a community building up Kanye. I'm going to ask you a hypothetical that's going to be probably a little weird. <laughs> but say Kanye hired you to give him media coaching. What would you advise him? I would actually point him to a meditation teacher like you. <laughs> well played. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that would actually be great. All right, let's, let's uh, make it a little more relatable for people. Let's say somebody's listening to this and they want to tap into their genius, right? Having had all the experiences that you've had at this point, what would some of the suggestions be? Just blindly, not not knowing this person, obviously, but I guess more general suggestions for people who want to really step into their own genius. I would ask the question, what is lighting you up the most right now? And just see where they go. Yeah, what's lighting you up the most right now? And that is usually the indicator of where the genius is. What's lighting you up right now, Caduce? I am enjoying writing way more mm-hmm. than I thought I would as a recovered extrovert who is an introvert. <laughs> now going back to being an introvert and being able to settle down and really connect dots on some of these moments that we're talking about and start to write this book. That's what's lighting me up right now. Beautiful. What about you? And, uh, lighting you up how, right how- now? having these conversations, man, I'm, I'm new to podcasting and I'm just really thoroughly enjoying it more than I ever imagined. And it's one of those things where podcasts obviously have been around for quite a while now. And I know you and I have talked because we're friends off camera. We're friends and we talk fairly often, but we talked about starting a podcast. I know you have one that's kind of like in, in purgatory. <laughs> <laughs> it's very kind and, of uh, and mine was like that too for a long time, but I'm just glad I did it. And, and just to see the, the different levels, the iterations, like I'm about to rebrand my podcast very, very soon. And I don't think I could have come to this point without having done almost 100 episodes. But I had to do those in order to see where the next phase is taking me. So I'm just enjoying the process, man. That's what lights me up. It's just the process. That's a great answer. It's a great answer. I think the pro- the process is the only thing that we can really control, right? Like the outcome mm. we never That's have right. control over. That's right. But the outcome I feel is 
is always going to be, it's kind of like you and your much music experience, right? It's always, even if you get rejected from what you think you want to have happen, there's always something bigger and more inclusive of your potential, your talent, your skills that that's kind of about to come in. If you can be courageous enough to let go of that rejection and be open to whatever else is happening. So that's the, that's the dialogue I'm always having with myself in helping me overcome my own imposter syndrome. Cause I feel like we all have it. Right. And I even posted yeah. something recently. I said, if you don't have imposter syndrome, you need, you're not going far enough. You need to push yourself mm, a little bit more. Such that's an point. indicator that you're right at the edge of your comfort zone, which is right where you want to be. Cause that's where all the most creative stuff ends up happening. Totally. Totally. Yep. Well said. Well said. What a great combo, man. How can people experience Caduce today? Like what's the best way? Are you, you, you have a podcast in development, you're writing. Are you, well, I've got a mastermind. I'm leading a mastermind a ma- called the creator incubator. So if someone is dreaming up a project and wants support in actually developing that project to get to the point where they can launch it, mm-hmm. that's what we're doing in the creator incubator. We're taking someone from an idea through to launch. Beautiful. And what's the prerequisite? They have to have the idea already or do you help them Not develop even. the idea? Not even. Let's say if they come to the table and they just know they want to do a podcast, then we can mm-hmm. take them through the steps that we have in this process to develop that idea into a fully formed brand and then get it ready for launch. In that process, what's like one question that you ask creators that they maybe not have they may not have considered fully or taken seriously that kind of helps them open up to that path? I find the question of what part of themselves they're ready to own Hmm. being really helpful because then they get to thinking about, okay, yeah, what does this project represent that I can own now? Because generally Mm -hmm. it means that they're actually sharing a part of themselves that is an evolution. It's like putting Mm -hmm. a flag in the earth for who they are now versus who they were two years ago in some ways. So Generally, that means they got to really alchemize some element of what their evolution is adding up to for this podcast or whatever it may be. Beautiful, man. We'll list links to all of your stuff in the show notes, assuming that everything is still on your website. So it's caduce.co. Caduce.co. Q-U-D-D-U-S dot C-O. Awesome. Yeah, cool, brother. brother. Appreciate cool. you, man. This we'll list great. all that in the show notes. Thank you so much for making the time. Looking forward to. I haven't seen you in person in years. It's been a long time. It's been too long. <laughs> well, come visit. I'm in Portland right now. Yeah. Okay. Cool. <laughs> come to Mexico City, brother. I got a bedroom, an extra room for you here too. Amazing. So. Yeah. Yeah. We're due. We're due. This is going to be great. Great reunion. Appreciate you, brother. Yeah. You too, man. Thank you for tuning in to my interview with Caduce Philippe. To get more information on Caduce's work and on the master classes that he talked about, his website is caduce.co, Q-U-D-D-U-S.co. And do yourself a favor and check out that documentary, Genius, on Netflix. Even if you're not a Kanye fan, I think you'll truly appreciate his journey and everything that he had to overcome to get people to believe in him as a rapper. And honestly, it puts into context a lot of the things that we're seeing today and how Kanye had to believe in himself so much that he essentially developed this overconfident persona. 
Of course, we'll put links to everything in the show notes, which you can find at lightwatkins.com. And while you're there, you can search my past episodes by subject matter. I don't know if you knew you could do that, but if you want to see more episodes that are about people who took a leap of faith or about people who overcame financial struggles, you can get a list of all of the subjects and all of those episodes that correlate to those subjects on my website. Also, if you're feeling inspired by these stories and you want to make sure that this podcast continues to stick around for a while, the best way to support my mission is to leave me a rating or a review, which you can do really quickly by just glancing at your phone right now. And in the Apple Podcast app on the screen, you'll see the name of the podcast. Just click on it, scroll down past the previous episodes, and you'll see five blank stars. And all you're going to do is tap the star on the right and you've left me a five-star rating, which is awesome. Thank you so much for that. And otherwise, I look forward to hopefully seeing you back here next week with another story from the end of the tunnel. Until then, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, keep taking those leaps of faith. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you and have a great day. You want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.